All right. Well, good morning, South Point. How are we doing today? It is great to see you guys, and uh, if you are a first-time guest, just want to say special welcome to you, and uh, if you haven't met me before, my name is Michael Lapine. I'm an associate pastor here at South Point, and uh, super excited to be a part of this series that we've been doing, Questions for God, and I hope that throughout this series, as we wrap it up today, I hope that throughout this series, you as a believer have learned that one of the great things about being a follower of Christ is that when you become a Christian, you don't have to check your brain at the door. Are you with me? That they, our, our faith is not something that we just tell people you should blindly believe it. Just accept it, even though there's no evidence for it. But rather, our faith is an evidence-based faith that we can be firm, that we can stand upon, so that even in times of doubt, we can look at the evidence and go, man, you know what? I just don't have enough faith to be an atheist. Okay, I have, I, There is enough evidence that makes me go, I can't deny that God exists, that he's revealed himself through the person of Jesus, and that he is alive inside of me today. Amen? And so I hope that you've been challenged challenged by that. I hope that you have been challenged to pick up the resource page that's in your bulletin every single week that you have began to dive into these questions even more, uh, especially ones that you're really, really interested in. Uh, in fact, I want to encourage you to make sure and do that today because there is a bonus question that's only in your bulletin or your YouVersion Bible app. You can see it in there. Uh, it is the question, what about those who have never heard about Christ? So be sure that's your homework for this week, all right, right off the top. See, you adults thought it was just kids that got homework going back to school. School, right? You guys have homework, so be sure to check that out this week. But today, we are going to be dealing with a question that uh, I think permeates so many people's minds, in the church and outside the church as well. And it's based around this question, do good people go to heaven? Do good people go to heaven? I think what we typically mean by that in our culture today, when we say, well, good people go to heaven, what we typically mean is that we believe there is a connection, that there is a relationship, a correlation between the quality of life that we live, the good things that we do in this life, and where we ultimately will spend eternity. We believe there's a connection between those two things. Whatever heaven means to whoever it is in our culture that believes it, we believe that there is a connection, a relationship between the quality of the life that you live and where you ultimately spend eternity whenever you die. And this belief really has a lot of good things going for it, doesn't it? I mean, on the one hand, if good people going to heaven, I mean, it seems like a fair system, doesn't it? I mean, like our whole culture is based around this idea and this concept. Even our homes are based on this. Like when you do good things and you obey the rules, you get rewarded, right? And when you break the rules, you break the laws, you get punished, right? Even in our own home, it works that way. When my kids do good things, they obey, they use their manners, they say yes ma'am, no ma'am, yes sir, no sir, right? When they obey the rules, we reward them for it because you reward what you want repeated, right? But on the flip side of that, when my children disobey and they don't follow the rules, we discipline them. They get punished for it so that they learn not to do it anymore. It seems like a pretty fair system. And so if all of society kind of runs this way, then it makes sense that heaven would run this way too, right? If you live a good life, you do good things, then ultimately you go somewhere good. And if you're a bad person, then ultimately you go somewhere bad when you die, right? Seems to make sense. On another hand, another reason this system has a lot of good things going for it is, is secondly, is because if good people go to heaven, then you're going to go to heaven because you're a good person, right? Because, because here's what we typically do. We think of ourselves as being in at least the top 50% of all the people in the world. And, and, here, and here's what we do. We draw a line. I have a visual for you today, okay? We draw a line, this vertical line, and on one hand, we put the good people, and on the other side, we put the bad people. So on this side, we have mo the moral mountain of Mother Teresa, 
right? Like she is the epitome of goodness, right? I mean, Mother Teresa that went to Calcutta, India, worked in orphanages and, you know, would work in leper colonies. Like I even heard a story one time where Mother Teresa, when they would bring in shiploads of, of old shoes for the orphans, that she would let the orphans pick all the shoes first and then she would take whichever shoes was left over. And so near the end of her life, her feet became very crumpled up because she was wearing shoes that weren't good for her and were too small for her. I mean, when you're choosing the pair of shoes that orphans in Calcutta, India don't even want, I would say that qualifies you to be all the way on that side. Wouldn't you agree? So on the flip side of that, though, we have the moral monster of Adolf Hitler. Right? Like, even in our culture today, you have people all over in our culture saying, oh, they're like Hitler. Oh, that's like the Nazis. Why? Because in our minds, the worst evil that you can call someone or that we've seen is Adolf Hitler and the Nazis, right? And then what we do is in our minds we go, well, but then there's other really, really bad people. Like, they're not as bad as Hitler. They're not committing genocide, but they're really, really bad. So next to Hitler, we put the rapists and murderers and thieves and folks that have done horrible, horrible things. And then we say, well, but then there's other people. They're not that bad. I mean, they're, they're still bad people, but they're, they're not that bad. So we'll put them next to them. And so we put bad people. These are the people that, like, talk about you bad to the boss behind your back, right? These are the people that write something on Facebook, and you're like, I know you didn't say my name, but I know that's about me, right? These are the people that cut you off in traffic. They're the ones that drive below the speed limit in the fast lane. Can I get an amen? I'm, I'm just throwing that out there, all right? I'm just, just speaking truth, all right? But so we put all the bad people there, right? And then we go, well, but I'm not as bad as all those people. I mean, I don't do all of those things. So what we do is we put ourselves right over here by Mother Teresa, right? Your picture here. We, we cozy up next to Mother Teresa. We say, oh, Mother T. Oh, now I know I haven't gone to Calcutta, India. I know I've not given stuff for, for, you know, the orphans and all that. But I paid my taxes on time, right? I mean, we're like, hey, hey, you know, I go to church. I even serve at church. I don't just go. I actually give my time. So certainly that qualifies me to be on this side of the aisle, right? And you see, see, so what we do in our mind is we separate everybody into this good side and bad side, and we think of ourselves as being on that side. And so the truth is, is, is we could go on and on and on about this idea that good people do good people go to heaven. And you know, the truth is, is that this really begins, this idea begins to impact the way we think about the world. It impacts all kinds of different things. So it raises questions like what we'll deal with today. Like, well, don't all paths then lead to God? I mean, if good people go to heaven, then certainly all religions, you know, they basically all teach the same thing, you know, so they'll all, we'll all make it. And typically we don't think a whole lot about heaven and the afterlife because we typically just think, you know what, it'll all just work itself out. I don't really have to think about it a whole lot because I'm a good person. I'm basically, I'm not as bad as all those folks. So everything, eh, it'll just work itself out whenever the time comes. And, you know, the truth is, is if you've been a follower of Christ for any amount of time, if you are familiar with the scriptures at all, then you know that sometimes the Bible can be very frustratingly silent about many of the questions that we have. Like that the Bible just isn't interested in answering all the questions that we have about life. I've had people ask me about dinosaurs and things like that, and I'm just like, well, I don't think the Bible's really interested in answering that question, so you're not really going to find anything there, right? There's questions that we have. Like the Bible contains history, but it's not a history book. It's not a science book. It's not a book of biology. That's not the point. The point of the scriptures, the 66 books of the Bible that we have collected together under the title of the Bible is a unified story that ultimately points people to Jesus. That, that's the point. So when we come to the scriptures with questions that aren't related to that story, the scriptures are frustratingly sometimes silent. 
But the good news for us this morning is that on this question, do good people go to heaven? The scriptures are explicitly clear that we can be able to draw to be able to know whether or not good people go to heaven. So with that in mind, if you have your Bible, if you have a mobile device, go to John chapter 14. John chapter 14 is where we're going to begin today. And uh, John, we call it a book. It's the fourth book of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. It's one of the four Gospels. Uh, And we call it a book, but really what it is is it is a first century biography from an eyewitness to the life and resurrection and death of Jesus of Nazareth. So John, when Jesus walked this earth, was one of Jesus' closest friends. He was one of his, not just one of his 12 disciples, but he was one of his three inner circle, Peter, James, and John. So John eyewitnessed Jesus' ministry. He eyewitnessed these things. He wrote them down to record them for later generations like you and me to be able to read about them. So we come to John chapter 14, and Jesus now, let me set the scene a little bit. Jesus is about to go through and finish his Passion Week. In less than 24 hours, Jesus is going to be betrayed by one of those who were close to him. He is going to be uh, beaten. He is going to have false allegations made about him in open court. He is going to be scourged under Roman authority with the the whip, the cat of nine tails, that had metal and bone laced into it so that they would stick in their back and then rip it out and literally shred the back of the individual. Many people didn't even survive a Roman flogging. And then he would be given a beam to carry along his back to walk down the Via Dolorosa to a place called Golgotha or the skull where he would ultimately be crucified between two criminals. That's less than 24 hours away, all of that. Now let me ask you, if you knew you had 24 hours left to live, who would you spend it with and what would you say to him? You think to yourself, okay, I want to get the people who are closest to me. I want to make sure and communicate everything that I need to say to them. I want to make sure they know certain things before I pass from this life, right? That's what Jesus is in essence doing in these last few chapters of John. We're only going to talk about one of them. John chapter 14, verse 1. Jesus says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, or rather he says, you trust in God, so trust also in me. Now right here, right off the top, Jesus is already starting with an explicit comment where he is in essence saying, listen, you have trust in the Father, so you can also put that same trust in me. He's equating himself with the Father. He's equating himself with God. Listen, if you can put this level of trust in God, guess what? You can put that same level of trust in me. And we don't have time to dive into that more, but suffice it to say, right off the top in John 14, Jesus is already making some crazy statements here. Verse 2, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so that you may also be where I am. So right off here, Jesus is saying, okay, listen, I'm going to the Father. I'm going to prepare a place for you. Then I'm going to come back and get you to bring you to where I'll be. Seems pretty straightforward, doesn't it? Then the very next verse, verse 4, you know the way to the place where I'm going. So it seems as though Jesus has talked about this before. This seems to be something that Jesus is assuming that they have this information already. You know the way to the place that I'm going. As if he's talked about it before and is just trying to make sure that they understand it and haven't forgotten it. And then before we go into the very next verse, here's what I love about the New Testament and here's what I love about particularly the Gospels is you have this thing, Pastor Scott talked about it in the very first week when he talked about when scholars, when historians, believers and unbelievers alike, even unbelievers who are not Christians, who look at the New Testament, they look at them not as inspired religious words, but purely as ancient documents from the first century. 
and they look at them. One of the evidences that they use to determine, okay, is this an accurate writing or is this, did they just make it up? One of the evidences is called embarrassing evidence. You remember from week one. Embarrassing evidence goes like this. If you're going to make up a story, you're not going to make yourself the brunt of the joke. Right? You're not going to portray yourself in a negative way. And yet all throughout the Gospels, you have the Gospel writers talk about themselves as if they're dim-witted, they're stupid, they don't understand what Jesus is saying. I mean, right before this in John 13, Peter, Jesus tells Peter, hey, listen, uh, you're going to deny that you even knew me three times before the sun rises tomorrow. And Peter is going to become the leader of the church. If you were making it up, I'd probably say, hey, Joshua, why don't we have Jesus tell you that you're going to deny him three times, not me. And yet, in this very next verse, we see a perfect example of that in verse 5. So Thomas kind of raises his hand from the back of the room and says, uh, Lord, uh, we don't know where we're going. How can, we, how can we get there? I don't know if I need to use a mic or anything, but let me know if I do need to. So, so Lord, we, we don't know where you're going, and, and we don't know how to get there either. Well, well, Jesus just told you, didn't he? He's going to the Father. He's going to prepare a place, and he assumed that they knew. And yet Jesus is standing there. It's almost like I can imagine Jesus kind of scratching his head going, okay, all right, let me make sure that this is absolutely crystal clear for you guys. In verse 6, Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one. Everybody say no one. No one. Circle that, highlight it if you can. We're going to come back. That's, we'll come back and we'll revisit that again. No one comes to the Father except through who? Me. Jesus is being absolutely explicit that you can't make it to God unless you go through me. Now, listen, Christianity wasn't even around at this point. Like, Jesus hasn't died yet. He hasn't been resurrected from the dead. The church hasn't begun yet. Acts chapter 2 hasn't happened yet. Jesus, the ch Christianity doesn't even exist. There are other religions in the world at this time that Jesus would have been aware of. And yet still, Jesus says, no one comes to, comes to the Father except through me. What a, an absolutely crazy statement that Jesus makes. And yet, this is very important. C.S. Lewis in the in last century, very famous Christian author, writes in his book, Mere Christianity. If you haven't ever read it before, pick it up, read it this week. It's an absolutely fantastic read. And here's what C.S. Lewis writes about these claims that Jesus makes about himself. He writes and says, I'm not trying here to prevent, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept, him, accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. This is one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. That's a powerful statement, isn't it? Because if Jesus was making the claims that he was making about himself, saying, I am the only way to God, you can't get there any other way. 
That's not something a good moral teacher would say. And so you can fill this blank in your notes. Jesus is the way to God because he was the life and the truth from God. He revealed who God was, and so therefore we must go through him. Now, this is what Jesus claimed about himself. But what about the disciples? What did the disciples, what did the disciples say about himself? Well, as we move into the very next movement of the church, in Acts chapter 4, you can flip over to the very next book. In Acts chapter 4, this is after Jesus' death, resurrection, he's ascended into heaven, and ultimately his disciples, they're filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. God is using them to heal people and do incredible things, perform miracles. And so Peter and John, John, the author of John that we just read, they're walking onto the Temple Mount to worship and to pray in Jerusalem. And they walk through this gate called Beautiful, and there's a crippled man that's there who's been there for decades. They heal him through the name of Jesus. He gets up and he's running around, running all over the place. Everybody recognizes who he is. It'd be like a crippled man out in front of our church for 30 years. And every week you put in a couple of bucks into his little can that he hands out. And then all of a sudden you show up one day to church and he's running around the parking lot, jumping, screaming, praising God and saying, oh my goodness, look, I'm healed. I can run. I can jump. I, can, I have vitality and strength in my bones. Like, no, this, you'd be going, what in the world? How did that happen? Wouldn't you? You'd be going, like, this is crazy. And that's exactly what happens. This huge crowd of people gather around. And Peter and John start preaching, and they start preaching about Christ. And the Jewish leaders don't like that. So they take Peter and John, they throw them into jail, and they bring them out the next day, and they say, in whose name are you doing all of these things? And here's how Peter responds, verse 8. When Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if, you, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified. I love that little dig he kind of sticks in there a little bit. Whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead. Now that's an important phrase that Peter puts in there. Because the only people in Jewish thought in this time, the only people that God raised from the dead were people who were falsely killed, and then God raises them from the dead to vindicate the claims that they were making about themselves. And so by God raising Jesus from the dead is vindicating all of the claims and putting an exclamation point on all of the claims that Jesus made about himself. Because Jesus didn't stay dead. He was risen from the dead. Let's continue on. That, that this man stands before you healed. Verse 12. Salvation is found in who? No one. That's an important phrase. I wonder where he got that from. Salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given by men by which we must. We must. We must be saved. So Jesus was explicit about what he claimed about himself. The disciples were equally explicit that Jesus is the only way to God. And listen, just as unpopular as the exclusivity of Christianity is today in our culture, it was that much more intolerable in the first century. Because they had the Jewish culture that was running after them, persecuting the early church called the way. And then the Roman Empire got involved and tried to squish it out. And yet not even the Romans could squish it out. These men and women went to gruesome deaths believing this message that God had raised Jesus from the dead. And that if you want to get to God, Christ is the only way. Now listen, I know that martyrdom does not prove truth. We, Pastor Scott talked about that again in, in week one as well, right? Excruciating evidence. Martyrdom does not prove truth. There are people that die every single day for what they believe to be true. 
But what makes modern day martyrs different and distinct from first century, these first people that gave their lives for the message of the gospel, what makes them unique and distinct is that they were in a position to know whether or not what they were saying was actually true. Are you with me? They actually knew. They were eyewitnesses. They saw Jesus after he'd risen from the dead. They saw it, and so they were willing to go to gruesome deaths, to be beheaded, to be crucified, to be crucified upside down, to be sawed in two. They went to gruesome deaths, and all they would have had to say is, hold up, we just, hey, hey, we just totally made it up, guys. Totally made it all up. We, all that stuff about Jesus rising from the dead, we totally made it up. And yet none of them did. So you can fill this blank in your notes. There are people that will die every day for what they believe is true, but no one dies for what they know is a lie. So Jesus claimed to be the only way. The disciples, when he was gone, claimed that he was the only way. So how then does this impact the questions we have today? Well, don't all roads lead to God? The right question to ask when somebody makes that statement or asks that question is to ask, well, which God? Which God do they point to? Because the truth is, is all different religions teach vastly different things about even just this one doctrine and belief about who God is. Like there are sometimes some things like the golden rule and sometimes people say, oh, they all teach the same thing because, well, everybody has the golden rule. Yeah, well, so what about that? The golden rule is not a central doctrine of Christianity, right? It's, it's one of the things that we ought to do. We ought to live that way. But it's a moral teaching that Jesus gives that you find in other religions. So what about that if there's some similarities there? Take the idea of God itself. Let's just take even the three great monotheisms of the world. Let's take Christianity, let's take Islam, and Judaism. What do each of them believe about God? Well, Christianity, if you're a follower of Christ, we believe that God is triune in nature. That God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That He is one, but that He has three centers of consciousness. Not that God is somehow three things in one thing, or one thing in three things. That's logically incoherent. The doctrine of the Trinity is that God is one, but He has three centers of consciousness. Just like you and I have one. We have an I, an ego. God is three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that we call them these different names because it represents God, the different roles of the persons of the Trinity and God's overall plan of salvation. The Father sends the Son into the world. The Son takes on a human nature in addition to His divine nature. And He lives among us as a man, as Emmanuel, God with us. And He gives His life as a ransom for our sins to allow us to come back to the Father. Then when the Son ascends, the Spirit comes and fills us and assures our hearts. And Paul says in Romans 8 that He seals our hearts to remind us that we are in fact adopted as His sons and His daughters. We are in fact His children. This is what we believe about God. Now, Islam believes none of those things. Islam believes in a God called Allah, which is not the same as the God of Christianity. Let's make sure and make that clear. Allah, you never know where you stand with Allah. You can follow the five pillars of Islam and yet still never quite know where you stand with Allah. You can follow the five pillars of Islam and yet die and yet still not inherit 70 virgins. Allah is spoken of in the Quran that he hates the unbeliever. And that you and I as unbelievers of Islam, we are in what's called the house of war. Which we, means we must be compelled by force to believe in Allah. And if not, then they should kill us. Now, in, even in the Old Testament, as graphic as the Old Testament could be, God says in the Old Testament, I do not delight in the death of the wicked. We see that God is revealed as a God of love. Even in 
Islam, they don't believe that Jesus is divine. They believe he was a prophet, but that ultimately he didn't actually, he wasn't actually crucified. He was killed on a stake. And Jesus' crucifixion is probably the most highly historically attested fact of history. And yet the Quran states otherwise. Judaism, of course, believes none of those things either. They don't believe, they believe the idea of the Trinity is heretical. They believe that Jesus was not divine and co-equal with the Father, but that Jesus was rather a political insurrectionist who got crucified for his trouble. So that's just three. That's not even talking about Hinduism and Buddhism and Mormonism and Jehovah's Witnesses, all of which teach vastly different things, even just about God at all. So you can fill this blank in your notes. Listen, every single religion, it's possible, could be wrong, but not all of them can be right. The question that has to be asked is, which one of them is true? That's the question that has to be investigated. So, these disciples gave their lives. They died for this belief that not all religions teach the same thing, but that Christianity is unique. So then we come to this question. Well, then don't good people go to heaven? If you believe that good people go to heaven, then ultimately you have to believe that Jesus of Nazareth was either a liar or a lunatic. Because Jesus seems to teach that good people don't go to heaven, but bad people do. Let me explain. Jesus is walking with his disciples one day, and he's walking along these people, and he sees this crowd of people that are professional good people. They're professionals. It's all they do for a living. They learn to be a good person. These teachers of the law, these leaders of the Jewish faith. And he comes along and he says, hey, listen, uh, fellas, if you want to get to God, yeah, the goodness of these guys over here, you have to be gooder than them. There's my good grammar for the day. You have to be better than them. You have to be more holy. You have, your goodness must exceed theirs. Like these guys were crazy, crazy. Like if the law was to say, if the rule was to say you can't come within three inches of the edge of the stage, well, they would make an additional law and rule to say, well, you can't come within three feet of the edge of the stage. So they made rules on top of rules to make sure they didn't break the rules. Some of y'all have maybe been in some churches that are like that too. But here's the, so they would make all these extra rules, right? Just to make sure that they didn't break the rules. And Jesus says, yeah, if you're not better than those people, if your goodness and holiness doesn't exceed theirs, then you're not going to make it. To which all of the normal people in the room, like you and me, are going, but how am I going to make it then? I mean, how, how in the world? If these guys can't earn their way towards God by being a good person, then how can I? I have a job, right? I have a job. I have, I have family. I have kids. I got a spouse. I got to take my kids to soccer practice. I got this. I got to serve at church. I got all these things. We got all these things going on. Jesus, I don't have time to be a good person. And so Jesus says, listen, there's a different way. In Luke chapter 23, we see this other way. In Luke's gospel, Luke, who was a very intelligent doctor in the first century. The reason why I say intelligent one is not just because he was a doctor, but because he seems to be very a well-read person. He even uses some of the same words to describe Jesus that the philosopher Plato in his book, The Republic, talks about a man that if a truly just person lived, then he would be crucified for his troubles. Many people call it a pagan prophecy that he's looking ahead to the person of Jesus. And Luke uses the same words to describe Christ in Luke's gospel. It's very interesting. So Luke goes out and he investigates. He wasn't an eyewitness himself, but he investigates like a detective. He asks, 
people, all the eyewitnesses that were there. Okay, tell me about Jesus. Tell me about Jesus. Tell me about Jesus. Tell me about Jesus. And he writes this gospel as an investigative detective. And he comes in Luke chapter 23. This is where we come to the death of Christ in his biography in verse 32. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. Now that word criminals is an interesting word because oftentimes we think of them as thieves, right? We think of them as the thieves on the cross. But really the word that Luke uses there in the Greek to describe criminals is actually a word that's more closely related to our English word of pirate. Because the Romans didn't crucify thieves. They didn't crucify common criminals. This was free slave labor for them. They sent them to work in the salt mines. They sent them to roll their wars of ship, or their ships of war. They put them to work because it was free slave labor. So why would they kill somebody just because they were a petty criminal? No, they'd send them to work and let them die in the salt mines instead. So in other words, these men are so evil, they're so reprobate, they're so far gone that even the Romans say, nah, we can't trust you to do that stuff. We're going to go ahead and crucify you. You're some bad dudes. Verse 33, when they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him along with the criminals, one on his right, one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. Now, in some of the other gospels, you have uh, the writer talking about how both of these criminals began to hurl insults at Jesus. But Luke leaves that detail out. That's not one that interests him. He leaves that part out and he says, now there's another detail that I want to be able to exemplify in this biography that I'm writing about Jesus. Here's the detail that I want to bring out. Verse 39. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. Notice he throws a little and us in there as well. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God? Since you are under the same sentence, we are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. Now, how of a life, how bad of a life do you have to live to think that while you are hanging on a cross being crucified going, yep, I totally deserve this. Like how bad of a life do you have to have lived? He says, we deserve this, but this man has done nothing wrong. He said, then he said to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. It seems at this point, this man does not look at Jesus on the cross and say, Jesus, help me to turn over a new leaf. Jesus, help me to be a better man. Help me to be a better father. Help me to be a better husband. Help me to be a better person. Help me to go help the poor. And help me to go, Jesus, help me to do all these things. He doesn't say any of that, does he? And by telling this man that he will be with him in paradise, he doesn't have any time to go be a good person, does he? He's hanging on a cross. He's about to die. He has no to get down off the cross and say, okay, I'm going to go do good things so that I can get my way to God. And Jesus, in his response to this man, shouts through the centuries and shouts through the millennia and says, listen, your, your, past, of, your past of crime, it's no problem for me. Your shame that you're carrying around, it's no problem for me. The things that you've done wrong in your life, no problem for me. You don't know what's right from wrong, guess what? No problem for me. I can take it. Because here's what the reality is. Coming back to this illustration that we had at the beginning, we draw this, this vertical line down the, down, the, down the middle, right? When in reality the line is not vertical, the line is actually horizontal. And every single one of us falls short. No matter how good we are, we all fall short of God's moral standard. 
But what Jesus does is Jesus comes into the world, God with us, Emmanuel, and he takes the punishment for your wrongs and my wrongs, and he takes them upon himself, and he fills the gap so that we can ultimately make it to the Father. And he imputes to you and to me his righteousness so that when God looks at you and me in Christ, he, does, he sees Christ's perfection rather than our shortcomings. Do good people make it to heaven? No. But all of us bad people do. Because when Christ enters into the picture, he washes it all away and says, come on home. I've got purpose for you. I've got potential for you. I've got a plan for you. So come on. Because everything from your past isn't even a problem for me. Notice what the thief, what the, I say, I still call him a thief sometimes. Notice what the criminal on the cross says to Jesus. He does two things. He doesn't say, make me a better person. He doesn't make me say, make me good or anything like that. He does two things. Number one, he recognized who Jesus was. And two, he acknowledged his need for Jesus. He acknowledged, he recognized who he was. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. This is your kingdom. It's not mine. It's not somebody else's. It's yours. And he acknowledged his need. Jesus, remember me. That's all it takes. Now, you and I are not hanging on a cross. You and I are more than likely, we're going to go home. We're going to watch OU win tonight. We're going to go to bed. We're going to get up tomorrow morning. You're going to go to work. You're going to work all day long. You're going to have lunch. You're going to go do stuff. You're going to come home at the end of the day. You're going to watch another football game because there's another one tomorrow night. Then you're going to go to bed. You're going to wake up Tuesday morning. You're going to do the whole thing over again. More than likely, there's a very high percentage that er that's going to be all of our cases. So you and I have time to do good works. But please make this understanding in the forefront of your mind. We don't do, as followers of Christ, we don't do good things in order to earn our way towards God. Christ has already done that for us. You don't have to do it. He did for you and me what we couldn't do for ourselves. We couldn't be good enough. So Jesus came and did it for us. We do good things not to earn our way to God. We do good things in our lives out of a response for what God has already done for us. So should we be good people? Of course we should be good people. But that does not mean that our goodness earns our way to God. Because we can't be good enough. Why don't you bow your heads with me? Father, thank you. <laughs> thank you thank you that you did for me Lord you knew all the wrongs that I would do in my life and yet you still gave your life for me as unworthy as I am as unworthy as every human being who has ever lived has been it's because of your love that you gave your life that you are a just God, you are a holy God, and so sin cannot go unpunished. But Jesus, you came, and you took the punishment for our sin upon yourself. And so I pray today that you would help us to acknowledge our need for you.
to recognize who you are. Maybe for some of you in this room today, that's what you need to do. With every head bowed, every eye closed, I, I simply want to ask to say, who of you might feel like that criminal on the cross today? That you would say, yeah, you know what? I've got a past. I've got some shame. I've got some guilt. But all you have to do is recognize who he is and acknowledge your need for him. And that's all that it takes to walk into a life of freedom where you don't have to earn your way anymore. But now it's a life of freedom that is wholly devoted to him. Would you just raise your hand and let me know if that's you here today? You say, yeah, that's me. I've got the past, but I'm going to let it go. I'm going to walk away from it, and I'm going to follow Christ. Yeah, absolutely. I see your hand. Absolutely. You can put it right back down. Amen. Anyone else? As I pray, let's do just that today. Let's acknowledge our need for him and recognize who he is. Father, I pray that you would help us, Lord, lead us out of this place today as we choose to acknowledge and recognize you. I pray, Lord, that you would guide us and lead us each day. Help us, Lord, to be about your business. Help us to do the work that you have called us to do in this life. But I pray that you would also remind us, remove that load of having to do good things in order to earn your love, in order to earn your forgiveness, that you have already given those things even when we were still sinners. So I pray that you'd lead us out in freedom, lead us out knowing the truth that it's only through you, Jesus, that we ultimately get to God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.